Hi, this is Ethan Vespi, who is the guest on this episode of Extended Clip. Uh, I just wanted to do a little pre-show advertisement here. Uh, (laughs) If you are in Toronto, or rather the GTA, or maybe even just the province of Ontario, uh, I want to to inform you that uh, alongside the film stage, I will be co-presenting the Toronto premiere of Bertrand Bonello's remarkable film, uh, Coma. Uh, The screening will be on May 4th at 7 p.m. at Innes Town Hall in Toronto. Uh, There is an Eventbrite link to purchase tickets, but if you want to go to the source, check out uh, the film stage on Twitter. Uh, the film stage on Instagram, or Bleeding Edge Movies on uh, Instagram. Uh, And just if you do find the Eventbrite, uh, enter the promo code TFSCOMA. TFS and the C in COMA are capitalized, and you will receive a 10% discount. Now enjoy the show. I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards some greater purpose? Jackie Brown on his ass. Hey, 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 this is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. I remember that was a very controversial episode at my high school. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, because it's like a bottle episode, but it's fucking animation. Like, there's no reason to do that. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, speaking of controversial episodes, I, do you, I assume you guys, I caught up on that episode, uh, I think last year, where like Quagmire's sister is being abused by her boyfriend. Oh my god, yeah, episode? I saw that. When I was rewatching the show, it's like it's very weird that they try to do like a serious like women's abuse revenge fantasy like <laughs> episode. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it, yeah like a Miss Forty Five via Seth MacFarlane. I, you know, he's trying to capture back when popular entertainment guided our morals. You know what I mean? Yeah. Put us in the right direction. That's true. Hey, whatever <laughs> happened to those yeah, good old exactly, fashioned values? Exactly. Welcome to Extended Clip. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from the six, the great north, uh, returning champion, you know him, you love him, film critic and podcaster in his own right, it's Ethan Vespi. Uh, hi, thanks for having me back on. It's great. It's very uh, nice of you. Of course, of course. <laughs> Don't make it t- sound too obligatory, the thank yous. <laughs> uh, so our, our double feature this week is Joseph Losey's The Big Night in Timeline A, where, uh, you know, turning the page into the 50s here. Uh, as last time we were on uh, In a Lonely Place. So we didn't go too far in our timeline there, uh, but we're picking up right where it left off. And in our other timeline, we are going to talk about Jean Rollin's Lost in New York. Uh, That is a crazy movie, and I can't wait to dive into everything that uh, definitely happened and wasn't part of my imagination during that movie. But we'll start with The Big Night Ethan, why, uh, or, or if you have thoughts on them as a pairing, but specifically why The Big Night and Joseph Losey uh, for this episode? Well, generally I wanted to pick two films that were maybe a little underseen. And I mean, I, they're not underseen in the realm of, you know, like third world documentaries or, you know, 
populist Tunisian cinema or something. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, I think two films by filmmakers I'm very fond of, but also two films that I think that are considered relatively minor in their filmographies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, again, I, I, I judge everything by letterbox metrics. I think the big night has under a thousand logs mm-hmm. and lost in New York under two, under 2000. So I think, yeah, I can kind of say they're, they're both relatively uh, obscure. And I, I uh, so I wanted to, again, bring kind of two underseen films by filmmakers I was I, I was a fan of. But I also think they're both kind of um, interesting variations on the B-movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they both have very brief run times. Uh, so I knew I, I uh, had less of a risk of pissing you guys off. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's just say that uh, the, the, the total run time here is shorter than both movies that Ethan brought to the podcast last time. So that might be like something of a make good for making us watch uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen last time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and I, I think maybe Joseph Losey and Royan, you can, if you're, you know, willing to make a bit of a, a reach, you could make some comparisons towards them in terms of, you know, uh, Joseph Losey is someone who uh, was kind of in exile ended up working longer in Europe than America. So I kind of see him as more of a, a European filmmaker, uh, you know, an American filmmaker with a European uh, sensibility, whereas Royal was, you know, a horror filmmaker working in France, a country that was not very friendly to the horror film. So you can in some ways say he was an American filmmaker working in, in you know, Europe. So I think they're, uh, I think they're kind of... Uh, I think they're kind of a good pairing in that way. But The Big Night specifically, um, this is a film I saw about five years ago and thought it, I found it very interesting. And I just, and, thought, and I think of in terms of uh, talking about a certain B movie spirit, I, I thought it was a perfect fit. I'm, I, and I'm curious to hear what, uh, what y'all have to say about it. No, I, I, I was a big fan. I, you know, I think one of the first things that kind of jump out to me with this movie is, you know, kind of like the, you know, the lead being a teenager. And that aspect of it, because, you know, I, I, you feel like, you know, people usually credit like Rebel Without a Cause kind of maybe not being the first, but, you know, I guess, you know, it was more popular. A key movie. A key the, movie. The youth movie yeah, movement. To the yeah. youth movie movement. But it, it, you could definitely see, you know, the um, stems of that here <sighs> where kind of like the, you know, the passionate uh, teenager dealing with, you know, the family struggles and whatnot mm-hmm. and, or just, you know a teenager's emotions being seriously considered, you know, as he tries to, uh, you know, uh, claim his manhood, you know, through guns and suits. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, last time we were talking about a movie that it was only one year before this, and I talked about how the, the melodrama of In a Lonely Place almost predates the melodramas that you would see in the 50s by people like Cirque and like and Minnelli and like these masterful technicolor melodramas often uh, that are more like sociologically probing if you will and Nicholas Ray as well is one of those filmmakers with Rebel Without a Cause and Bigger Than Life and uh, yeah I feel like this is right in line with that where the aesthetics are all of the noir film but the emotional uh I wouldn't say the emotional intelligence of the characters, but like the emotional range of the characters and the uh, the yarns that you could pull at character psychology uh, and stuff like that feel much more ahead of their time. And uh, yeah, no, Losi is a really interesting filmmaker for this era. It's like 
he was like you know established as a uh, a political theater director and was like homies with Brecht and everything and had a very short Hollywood career before going European and it kind of makes sense it's like this is the type of Hollywood movie that Europeans would love, you know? So it kind of makes sense that he would fit right in there after political exile saw him leave the U S uh, this movie though. Yeah. Uh, just jumping off of the rebel without a cause thing. Uh, the expressive performance of uh, John drew Barrymore here. It's very angsty. It's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely one of the angstier uh, youth performances I can recall from this era. give a little quick plot recap we got uh john drew barrymore he's a young teen just turned 17 and he's celebrating his birthday at uh his dad's bar you know where he has a male living partner and uh you know he kind of uh uh they both kind of run the bar and you could i don't know it's kind of implied that maybe this uh john drew barrymore character is a little bit nerdy you know uh or something like that you know insecure in himself and, you know, right as he's blowing out the candles in his birthday cake, someone comes to beat up his dad and, you know, boy, does he. Not, not only does he beat up his dad, he humiliates him in front of all of the bar patrons, makes him strip down to, you know, show some skin, and he gets repeatedly caned. And uh, this inspires John Drew Barrymore to get, a, you know, put on his father's suit, get a gun, and kind of maybe look for the guy who did this. And uh, one last thing on that Rebel Without a Cause comparison, it's like so similar to the scene that Evan brought up last week from Rebel Without a Cause where James Dean sees his dad in like that maid outfit almost and he's yeah. like, ah, oh, this is just wrong. Like, Yo, come on. That's gay. Yeah. <laughs> pause, uh, this is a similar pause. thing where it's like this angsty coming of age narrative that it, it involves like the father figure being completely emasculated mm-hmm. and the kid not knowing what to do with that, you know? Yeah, no. I always like that being the jumping off point for like the, I don't know, I feel like a genre that, like a sort of sub-genre that is very B-movie. And I mean, especially the title is The Big Night. I love a film that's just like all, <laughs> like one crazy journey over the course of one evening and then, like, especially because the scope of this is just, like, manhood and becoming a... Like, there's so many, like, just very obvious but, like, fun symbols there of just, like, putting on daddy's suit that, like, is a little bit too ill-fitting. But just being like, why is my dad a bitch? Like, just that <laughs> spiraling you out into an insane journey where you have all these revolutions about, like, manhood uh, accidentally, like, offending, like, a woman... Uh, by being racist, just uh, it yeah, no, it's it's quite a journey. Well, that's something we uh, all I, had to learn about. Go ahead, Ethan. Yeah, and his dad is a, a very uh, ma- masculine, manly man, and also a bit of a pog, as we see. Uh, oh yeah, his hairy, <laughs> his hairy, uh, his hairy chest on display in the film <laughs> um, during the the whipping or the caning scene. I should also say, I mean, about uh, John Drew Barrymore. Apparently, he was actually seventeen during production. Mm-hmm which I think adds to the film, adds the kind of looseness of his performance. I mean, 
teen characters are obviously no stranger to the realm of cinema, the aforementioned Rebel Without a Cause. But I think it's very, it's often, more often than not, it's like someone who's 26 years old playing a 15 year old. And I think yeah. how the kind of uh, fresh faced Luke Perry ish quality of him, it, it really lends to the film. And I don't, I don't think there's many, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there's maybe like an iconic film I'm forgetting right now and I'll be sweating uh, later when I realize I didn't bring it up. I don't think there's many noir films from the perspective of a 17-year-old. Not that no. I can recall. The closest I can think of is like uh, the way that Gun Crazy operates with that cold open of him being like a kid and then jumping to him as like a young adult kind of. Yeah. And then something like... Uh, I mean, they're supposed to be young in uh, the the debut Nicholas Ray film. They live by night. True. Uh, yeah. there, there's a remark about age there, but like they're clearly in their late twenties or mid twenties. The actors, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. I think they're supposed to be like maybe just adults, like maybe eighteen, nineteen. Yeah, and like their their lives in that don't really reflect that of like yeah. a teenager. You know, they're on the the lamb. But just... a real teen, because like the teen movie was like yeah. a big fifties thing, of course. Yeah. And yeah, they don't really go into the like the teen movie and the fifties noir don't really cross paths at all, other than here, I think. Uh, also, I'll, I will also be sweating if I think of one later while editing. But the thing about being the editor of the podcast is I can just kind of like insert it. I can just record yeah. a little a loop line, <laughs> yeah. get Voice a little over. ADR going, you know. Ad lib it. Yeah. I, I feel like we've done a lot of 50s teen movies because we also did... Uh, I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage werewolf. That yeah. movie has stuck with me. I need to rewatch too, yeah. that yeah. I love I love the rap song that they do. Yeah. I love the, <laughs> the like janky 50s teen camp aspect of it mm-hmm. uh i love uh the uh the, that song uh about that movie i think by like the the cramps damn i was born in the wrong generation i was man. totally born in the wrong generation <laughs> I, sh- I wish i was a teenager in the 50s oh, dude, can you imagine <laughs> you have one of those big ass cars yeah. <laughs> so uh, many milkshakes dude the i mean they must have been shit bricks like the amount of milkshakes that those fucking kids were drinking is insane just like, yeah, I'm going to go pick up my sweetie, but I'm going to drop a log for two and a half hours first. Uh, Sorry, on, go ahead, on, Ethan. On the tip of, uh, of Mr. Barrymore, I mean, I guess this is a, a subject which has been in uh, you know the discourse a lot lately. I say this based off the fact that... Uh, the most recent new rules segment on real time with Bill Maher addressed this, but um, uh, he's of course a was a nepo baby, um, but I think that that plays into the film in an interesting way. I was reading, uh, I have the book uh, Conversations with Losi, which is a uh, uh, Michel Simon's uh, interview uh, with uh, Joseph Losi about his career. It's a very interesting book. Uh, and he, he addresses the making of this film and says that apparently uh, John Barrymore really idolized his father, Lionel Barrymore, was obsessed with him, constantly was screening of his films and wanted to, you know, to do him proud, but was kind of li- lived this, you know, life of anxiety, uh, living in his shadow. And I think that's, again, something that also plays into the film in a really interesting way. That's probably how Brandon Cronenberg thinks. Brand- yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah. Every time he steps up to the plate. No, but the idea of just filling your father's shoes and like literally stepping into his suit is, you know, literally and metaphorically running throughout this movie. And so it's like a it's a pretty easy uh, A to B like meta text reading of it. But it's like that's such an easy way to inform the movie and add so much dramatic weight to it because his performance is that good where it does convey that throughout the movie in an interesting way and not just an I mean, uh, obvious way. Even in the style of the film too, like there are a lot of very impressive moments where those like symbols that or, or just like powerful images become very important. Like when he is uh, at the club watching the singer and uh, watching the drummer beforehand, and he has those like intense moments where he's like taken back to like the caning of his father to like the rhythm of the drums, mm-hmm. and then just like the candle on the table turning into the birthday cake, especially because it's like the birthday cake is like is is a, like a lovely sweet gesture at the beginning of the film but it's such like it's such a little baby boy birthday yeah. cake with all the little candles in the world <laughs> that it's just like y- you see that and it's just like he's just so like lit up like ah like just like it, it tears him up yeah and, i love uh, that sequence the style of it i mean it actually recalls the uh, the flashback at the uh, beginning of detour uh, when the main character is like in the bar rec- recounting the story, uh, the way that the glass is positioned and everything like that. But yeah, just that moment of the drum solo being overlaid with his face in anguish uh, is just so magnificent. I mean, that, that kind of whole sequence of him kind of just sitting in his chair at the bar and kind of going through a different, you know, different emotions as he, you know, recalls the caning and then is kind of uplifted you know, by this singer that he kind of uh, has a a bad racial relation with uh, yeah. towards the end. But like, it, I don't know, for like such a short movie, you know, in a B movie, I, I feel like that is like kind of a very, just seeing this guy go through like a complex, hazy, emotional state, I thought it was just really kind of impressive. And I don't know, not necessarily the standard thing you see in a noir movie, but I, you know, I thought I thought it was good stuff. Uh, I also like the the heavy in this movie. The guy, the character's name is Al Judge. Uh, kind of, he's just a like, he's a he's a sports journalist. Yeah, yeah, no, that's like an awesome guy to be like. A he- I was like, what does he do? Does he like run the gambling in this town? Like, what? What? Oh no, he's just like a, he's Bill Simmons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be cool if like the mob boss seeming guy in every town was just like the best sports podcaster. I mean, the way how much money Bill Simmons makes off of gambling, he basically is a fucking he basically, gangster. Uh, literally, like the. <laughs> Especially now that like uh, his excitement about FanDuel being legal in Massachusetts, it's like a guy being like, dude, heroin is literally legal. Yeah. <laughs> you can literally just do heroin. You're not gonna, he's not going to be so happy when his cousins come looking for some money. <laughs> bet it all on the fucking Red Sox. I'm trying to think. Is I'm trying to think of other films with uh, sports journalist characters. Is what is, isn't Woody Allen in Manhattan Murder Mystery a sports journalist? I think so. Yeah, I believe so. That, that that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. They they go to a game or two in that. And a yeah, the opening the, the the opening scene of that movie. Remember, is Woody Allen drinking a Coors Light at a New York Rangers game? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ray Romano is a sports journalist, and everybody loves Raymond. But that's all I can yeah. think of. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, Ray Romano. You know what? I'm not afraid to say it. Three years ago, I used to wait tables at a sushi bar. Yeah. 
uh, for like a, over a year, and uh, Ray Romano was a uh, regular customer there. Nice. And Ray Romano, hell of a guy. Great guy. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Just no, knew what he wanted to order, let his wife do most of the talking, Yeah. tipped generously, didn't really make eye contact with me. I didn't expect him to. He didn't want it either. Uh-huh. 10 out of 10 celebrity encounter. <laughs> Ray Romano, that's family. I'll, I'll say I, I think of all the sitcoms of that era, I do think everybody loves Raymond. I've, I've said this before on Twitter. It, it may, may be my favorite of that era. <laughs> uh, just because, again, Romano, very likable everyman. Brad Garrett, uh, very funny. Funny voice. Uh, good, good, good supporting performances from uh, Peter Boyle and Doris Roberts. And uh, yeah. Patricia Heaton, kind of a MILF, I won't lie. So uh, you, you got, a, sure. got the whole package right there. No, I, I, I might be more of a King of Queens fan. I might have an obvious bias there, but uh, um, what do you call it? I did, I did watch like pretty much every episode of Everybody Loves Raymond when I was yeah. like ten or eleven or twelve. I've, I've been watching that one at work lately because they switched up the rotation on like Cozy TV or one of those like <laughs> digital antenna cable free stations that you get at your like work TV or whatever. Yeah, uh, they switched up the rotation and took off Murder She Wrote which everyone else is really upset about, that they don't get to watch Murder, She Wrote at 6.30 instead of working. Uh, but uh, now, like, everybody loves Raymond. I start hearing that in the background while I'm working, and I'm like, this is this is a cozy show right here. This is like, look, of the era, I'm, I'm a Frasier guy, do or die, you know? And uh-huh. Seinfeld, of course, is goaded. But, like, I could see Raymond, you know, given that third spot a run for its money. King of Queens, I've talked about sneaky on this podcast. Good. It's sneaky good, you know? Like, I could see, like, I could see the books being re- rewritten on Raymond in the next five years. It's just kind of a bold prediction. If you're if you're buying Raymond stocks right now, you, you'd think the Raymond stocks are pretty low. But then you get that Ethan endorsement, and it's like, well... It, yeah. ra- it, you know, odds for Raymond to be a, like a sneaky smash in five years just went from like plus 5,000 to like plus 42, maybe. Yeah. It's like, all right, buy the st- buy it now. Do it now. That's good advice. Uh, yeah. King of Queens, also a good show. Yeah. Uh, uh, back to uh, back to the big uh, night. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm vaguely curious as to, to you guys' opinion on the film as the Los Angelinos. Do you think the film uh, realistically <laughs> portrays the geography of the city? <laughs> no, it uh, is one of the most like backlot merchant type movies I've seen in a minute, probably. Uh, like all of the you know sidewalks and exteriors and stuff are fake, and that's fine. Like I love I love a backlot movie that is all just fake stuff everywhere. But uh, yeah, it doesn't really feel like an LA movie in my opinion. It doesn't. It doesn't try to. You know, the worst is when like they're dropping like street names and stuff yeah, like exactly. that, and it's just all like weird and jumbled up. It's like this is. Yeah, it, it feels like a it's a LA movie, but it it no it's a humble has a humble disposition. They're not going to buy it off. Uh, they again, in, in the the conversations with Losi book, I read the, I reread the section about the big night, and Losi's talking about the scene in the boxing ring, and he's like, "Well, because the film was a very low budget production," and he's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I would have had." Would have been able to shoot on location at Madison Square Garden if I wanted to. I don't know. I'm giving a British accent. I'm like, it's like, are you aware Madison Square Garden isn't in Los Angeles? <laughs> <laughs> have you watched? Have you ever watched sports in your life, Joseph Losey? <laughs> I mean, also worth uh, mentioning about the film is that this was the last film Losey made before being blacklisted. 
Yeah. Um, he made three films in this year, and they're kind of all bangers, which is pretty impressive. Uh, the Prowler, uh, which is one of his best films, and also the M remake, which is kind of hard to see, but is very good, actually. It does the Yeah, original. I was very intrigued by that, the remake of M by him. Is yeah, it just like stylistically and, uh, a different type of approach, or like what's the deal? Yeah, pretty. Him? It's pretty different from from memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the thing is, apparently, yeah, Losi didn't really. He read the book that this film was based on and didn't think it was great, but he knew he was about to be blacklisted, and he had no money, so just like, fuck, sign me up, I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, he actually uh, during deep into post production, he fled to Europe. Uh, and, and apparently the film was actually re-edited against his wishes due to this. Uh, the film originally had a bit of a, a flashback structure, apparently, mm. which the producer uh, recut the film to be in chronological order uh, while he was, you know, in England hanging out from uh, authorities. I wonder if that would have made it better, because I do feel like the dramatic flow of this movie isn't great. Like, if I had to, if I had to pick a nit with this movie, it's like, the things on paper all work. I like the basic arc of it. It's a good arc for a 75-minute noir, you know? Uh, I like the lead performances. I think it's shot in an interesting way. I just don't think the dramatics flow in a particularly great way. Uh, but I still think it's a really good movie. Um, you know, I think the one of my favorite scenes is, you know, uh, Barrymore, like, after he puts on his father's ill-fitting suit to, like, kind of grow up. He's like pointing a gun like at the mirror doing the, you know, like the taxi driver kind of thing. Uh, And then like interrupted by a baby crying and uh, which is hilarious. He's like rocking the baby with the gun in his hand. (laughs) Uh, But it's this moment of like performativity by him uh, interrupted by reality. And I feel like that dichotomy is I mean, that's kind of like a lot of noir movies like that where it's like this like expressive you know uh german expressionism type influenced thing like moody stuff and then there's the reality of like whether it's the harsh you know crimes and the dark depravity of the story or whatever for this the reality of like the i don't know like the the situation he's in where he's like flailing and has to like watch a kid for a second <laughs> like yeah. uh yeah so i uh i like this movie a lot i'm gonna go uh three and a half bullets for the big night what about you malcolm i'm gonna go four bullets i feel like i really like uh the lead performance you mm-hmm. know what i mean and i feel like i kind of agree with you you know sometimes it it doesn't dramatically deliver but i feel like that's what you know you have a like a good director that has like you know like very good visual style very good at like kind of keeping attention mm-hmm. in a scene kind a very of very active camera yeah like by not like by focusing like by not showing the thing that you really want to see like he does that a lot mm-hmm. and it works like in that bar scene how you don't really see uh you know the what is his name al jolson the big fat uh sports <laughs> journalist that beats him up uh, uh, big gay al big gay al um uh like you don't see him and, and like he focuses on you know the father walking towards him you know just basic attention building stuff that i feel like carries scenes and then just you know seeing uh barrymore jr emotionally outburst you know it, I, it, it, it it's enough you know it gets you where he needs to go and uh, yeah, I, I've only seen one low C movie before, and I, I think it's a relatively minor, 
not to not to outclass you here, Ethan, but even more minor than this one. Uh, wow. The the lawless, where it's a journalist defending a bunch of uh, California field workers, and I, I think I like this one a little bit better. You know what I mean? That one was a little bit more spotlighty, journaly, journalisticy. This one's you know uh, more noir, a little bit more at my wheelhouse. But uh, I gotta check more of his stuff out. Spotlighty, so it takes place in Boston. Yeah, yeah. Nice, mm-hmm. nice. I'm getting into Boston. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> gonna be one of my things. I'm now. over. I'm I'm kind of over Boston. No, I, I loved visiting Boston. I'd love to go back there. Sure, I've never. Um, JT, what about you? Any final thoughts and a rating on this one? Uh, yeah, I'm going four bullets. Uh, this was my first Losi, so I'm curious uh, to check out more to sort of echo what you guys are saying about like the plot. I do think like. Obviously, there are weaknesses there, but the odds, like the just strange qualities about the film and just the the I don't know, the exploring like masculinity and daddy issues that alone do really the heavy lifting for me and like make it like a fascinating like piece to sort of dissect, especially like the way like it ends like this sort of weird reconciliation of like the reason like why his dad was like sort of caned and took it was that like he was dating this girl that he wouldn't marry because like he was still married uh to to Georgie's uh mom who had like run off on him just like that like I mean strange like sort of convoluted plot work but the movie ending with like father and son sort of reconciling over that while being like hauled away by the police. And also like, I mean, we did like touch on it like very briefly, but I do love the scene of him like uh, accident, like offending the singer and just like being like mortified afterward. <laughs> I do think like, I mean, it speaks like to like, obviously it's just like a strange quality for a film at the time to touch on about race and just even be like, I I don't know. I like, obviously that's what it's about, but I feel like this movie in relationship to being like a youth film, that's something that as he's like sort of going through all these experiences for the first time of like having like a drink or like going out and like meeting people the youthful experiment experience of like fucking up and saying the completely wrong thing like and especially because barrymore is so young i feel like just is crystallized there and the way we see him like through of like through the back of the car window being like i what i i'm sorry i didn't mean to I'm I'm sorry like that that just a great moment that like in a movie that's so lean like has no like plot reason to be in there. It's like uh, Seinfeld with the cigar store Indian. Yeah. <laughs> I saw there's a, a cigar store Indian near it near me locally. So Yeah, I I see them a lot. Oh yeah, I think I even know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, by the Dollar Tree. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ethan, uh thank you for bringing this movie on to the podcast what are your what are your final thoughts and like a rating on this one well uh in terms of the rating i'm going to give it a solid four bullets um again i don't i don't think the film uh, is as formally accomplished as you know some of losi's later european films like the servant or mr klein or even the prowler from the same year 
Uh, but I, I sort of find the weird modesty of the film very appealing. It really feels like the kind of uh, a true B movie, a tr- you know, a, a true example of a film that would play on the bottom half of a double bill. It's sort of low stakes. It feels unencumbered. And I find that, as JT was saying, just that kind of weird low stakes quality of it. Very, very appealing. And I, I was I was happy you all enjoyed it. We'll be right back on Extended Clip. So you're the great Al Judge, eh? I was just a wet-nosed kid, did Don't worry, I'm not gonna shoot. Not unless you try to pull a bastard. You're gonna sit there and take orders from me. Movies on a scale of 200. <laughs> he does that on 200. That's yeah. insane. At that point, it's like, what are you? What's even going on there? That's that's like more math than criticism at that point. He's doing advanced metrics, dude. Yeah. He's doing he's doing like VORP and like BPM uh, box plus minus for <laughs> just film criticism. Just watching a movie with like a calculator, and just, like, just like transferring the stuff down. Oh, oh, you take oh, you take notes. You don't use a TI eighty nine. Show your work. You got to show your work in the criticism. And we're back on extended clip. It's everybody's favorite segment. Malcolm in the middle. Life is unfair. Uh, Malcolm in the middle. This season, of course, we are catching up uh, on all the years that we don't cover a feature segment uh, for in. Our chronological timeline. So we're starting with uh, 1952, I believe. Uh, anyone uh, have a movie from 1952 that, w- that we want to talk about? I got one because I just I just uh, besmirched journalism movies, right? I was, you know, anti <laughs> anti newspaper, but one that the I way do... you started that sentence, I just besmirched. <laughs> I was like, whoa, what is he about to say? <laughs> I, I don't. I I keep. I keep those opinions private, but um, uh, Park Row by Samuel Fuller. Uh, journal. This is this is what we all want journalisms to be. We, you know, put down your pens, put up your fists. You know yeah. what I mean? That's that's the main. That's kind of like the main qualm of journalism. And this uh, is a movie that makes writing for a newspaper seem as cool as being a boxer, basically, yeah. which is dumb, but like it works because the filmmaking is just fantastic. And, you know, I don't want to expound maybe like too deep on the film, maybe more speak on the one scene. Well, I, I just like that all the newspapers are on the same row. You know what I mean? I guess that's kind of an older concept, like people's professions would be all on the same street. Yeah, it's in the newspaper district. Yeah, so... It's in the podcast district. I feel like that could cause some problems, maybe. You know, And it does in this one where, you know, we got an all-out brawl on this street, and it's one of the best, like, action scenes I've seen. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, even period, but, like, even, like, before, you know, like, I guess, like, uh, martial arts movies. And kind of my my main... uh, One of my smart lines that I use with Fuller... (laughs) Is that I always I always say that he's the best action director pre martial arts movie. You've and said this many times on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, we, we're a lot of episodes in. The, the repeats are going to be happening. I've you probably have talked to. Uh, talk you have to. Do, you, you have to establish it. the yeah. things that people will then eventually make fun of you for always saying. True. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just I want to I want I want 
ownership on this opinion if it becomes yeah. popular one day. I like yeah. the opinion. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a great opinion. Um, I, I'm I'm on board. I have I've bought quite a bit of stock in that opinion. I've I've yeah. rephrased it as my own once or twice. <laughs> yeah, Good. Absolutely. I like that. I like that. So yeah, Park Row. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say before, actually, I know uh, 52 is what we're supposed to do, but before we move on from 51, uh, I just want to say that uh, Awara by Raj Kapoor is a masterpiece. Uh, that's like, you know, you have Limelight, which is like the, uh, that that's in 52, the kind of self-reflexive tramp movie you know what it's like to not be a tramp anymore almost yeah. uh and about performance and stuff like that but then the uh the kind of tramp pastiche movie here by raj kapoor is so many other things too like just sprawls through so many subgenres of filmmaking and i think it's like some of the most beautiful like uh black and particularly the most beautiful black and white set decorations i've seen uh, in almost any movie, some of the like statues and stuff and are are just like incredible sights. Uh, Fifty two, though, you know, a lot of good movies. What are you gonna say? Uh, you know, you got Monkey Business, and uh, I already said Limelight. Uh, you know, Quiet Man, The Quiet Man, of course. I like Edward Dimitrix, The Sniper. That's like a early incel movie. You know, pretty cool there. Uh, Eth- the movement. Ethan, anything on the fifty two, fifty three? Uh, for 1952, I am going to give a shout out to King Vidor's Ruby Gentry. Mm. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen this. It's one of those kind of like, you know, hardcore Cahiers du Cinema favorites. <laughs> uh, Cahiers du Cinema Craig slash Craig Keller favorites. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we got to get starring him a, I Yeah, I agree. He's he's the king. Yeah. Uh, the, they're, when I think... He really is cinema. Forget Nicholas Ray. The cinema is Craig Keller. Um, <laughs> Craig, Craig, if you're listening, I think you're great. I'm not making fun of you. Um, Sam, Sam. Uh, this is kind of like a, a noir melodrama crossover uh, starring uh, Jennifer Jones, Charlton Heston, and Carl Malden. Uh, Jennifer Jones, in particular, is one of my all-time favorite actresses. Um I feel like people don't talk about her much today. I was going to say, I don't uh, even know who that is. Let me, Jennifer Jones? Uh, if you haven't seen any of the Jennifer Jones movies, I recommend Clooney Brown, uh, Duel in the Sun, and uh, Gone to Earth, the Powell Pressburger movie. Uh, but Ruby Gentry is like kind of a noir melodrama crossover, kind of a, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 one of those kind of people of different classes uh, falling in love and then drama ensuing kind of uh, movies. Um, it has a very memorable sequence in a swamp, uh, you know, where both the characters get swamp ass. Um, but it's a really, it's a, it's, I, I'm a big fan of King Vidor and I think it's uh, one of his, his very best films. And I think it was my favorite movie I watched during all of the 2020 2021 COVID lockdown, that uh, unfortunate period of time that's odd to reflect on. But Ruby wow. Gentry, it was better. It was it. better than all those new beautiful releases you got to see at home for the first time. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was better than uh, First Cow. Uh, first Cow was pretty good. <laughs> I like First Cow. I have it as a positive rating, but I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> the grand but, scheme uh, of things. <laughs> Looking at it now, again, uh, just again, getting into movie Moneyball, 
mode. Uh, I, Ruby Gentry is only at 1.6k views on Letterboxd. I think that's kind of a travesty. This yeah. film should be more seen. So, uh, yeah, Ruby Gentry. See it if you haven't. Uh, before we move on to Timeline B, I want to shout out a couple uh, pretty big ones, I guess. Angel Face by Preminger. I mean, that one just like you just have the two lead performances of Mitchum and Simmons and it's like you don't really need anything else just their two faces looking at each other is incredible it also inexplicably has one of the most Wait. hardcore crashes of all time I was gonna, gonna say I, I was saying Robert Mitchum and Bill Simmons <laughs> <laughs> that would be sick <laughs> well I mean friends of Eddie Coyle that's like literally that movie would have taken place when Bill Simmons was like a little kid in mm-hmm. Boston True. yeah it's so, one of those movies one of those movies you watch and just say Boston exactly <laughs> I, I've always I've always because you know the town you know I get why it's a huge Boston movie directed by Ben Affleck yeah you know no no one ever why don't all these like I wanted to hear Bill Simmons talk about you know uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle and never brings it up you never know, brings never, it up even know. with the Bobby Orr monologue I know Come yeah on. hey uh, also uh, 53 Antonioni's The Lady Without Camellias I don't know if I'm saying that word right uh, that, definitely not uh, it, it really great like I was kind of shocked at how good this was you know seven years before La Ventura uh, in terms of a very moody uh, dramatic film. It's still within the studio drama realm, but it's very moody and artsy for still being in that studio drama realm. Uh, it's like a meta movie about you know Italian film production and uh, kind of you know I don't want to say singing in the rain esque, but using the artificiality of the movie life world to do like expressive uh, stuff with the camera and the sets and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, that's that's that. If anyone has any other uh, fifty two, fifty three, real quick. Um, I- yeah, one last uh, fifty three. I wanted to mention. There's a two acres of land uh, by Bimal Roy, um, and uh, he's an Indian filmmaker that I definitely need to check out some more uh, stuff by. But he's more in like the realistic end of things. Um, and this story is about like, a uh, there's like a, uh, like rich landowning class, uh, that is trying to take, uh, this ancestral land. And so this poor, uh, dude and his son ship off away, uh, from the guy's wife to go to Calcutta to make some money. And it's just like about how fucking miserable, life in the city is like there's some really cool sequences where he's like working like as a rickshaw like driver and just like it seems like i mean i think if memory serves because it's been a hot minute since i've seen it they like really capture like the kinetic like kind of action of that there but also just how fucking miserable it is like a lot of the movie is just like him getting injured and just like other people that he lives with in like a shitty like sort of like shanty like setup in the city just being like broke and like the fact like i don't know they're just constantly losing money and trying to gain money for to get their land back but yeah no there was an i don't know interesting i don't know i feel like a contrast to some of like uh, like Raj Kapoor's work of the era that is like obviously I mean similar like social values 
but uh, significantly less lavish. Ethan, anything on the uh, first timeline before we jump ahead to the 80s? I feel like I should for for the fifty three uh, year. I should I should give a shout out to Ingmar Bergman's Sawdust and Tinsel, as that was that was the movie I uh, I got a notification on my phone, a news notification about Jeffrey Epstein's suicide while watching. Oh wow! One shot. That's moment. a movie about uh, clowns too, right? Isn't it like a yeah, movie about yeah. the circus and uh, <laughs> clowns the, the clowns that uh, suicided him? You know. If you yeah, know what I mean, yeah. those clowns in Congress. If you know exactly. What I, mean. <laughs> I uh, I gotta say, Sawdust and Tinsel is what made me like a Bergman skeptic. Like years ago, I watched that back in like the Hulu Criterion days, and I just remember being just bored out of my mind. But also, this is what eight years ago at this point. We we all can grow and we all can change. Uh, I was converted on Bergman on this podcast, even with uh, Smiles of a Summer Night. So uh, I, I, I got to go back to that one for sure. Uh, jumping ahead in the time machine to the late 80s, uh, real quick for 87, a duo of kind of like TV, like premium cable TV movies, uh, a good and a bad vanity project. One of them is uh, a bad one. And uh, it's it's a fun one, though. It's not even that bad. It's just like it shouldn't exist. But it's the return of Bruno uh, by Bruce Willis, <laughs> uh, where, you know, this is an HBO production where the first half of it is this like behind the music rockumentary type thing where they're pulling all the strings to get like these big musicians like Brian Wilson and Ringo Starr show up and talk about how cool this Bruce Willis rock character is. Uh, And he does like little music video segments and then he does like a full on performance for the second half of it. And it is kind of interminable, like the performance part of it. And it's like a really weird vanity project. But the fact that it exists is pretty great. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, you also have 1987's Action Family by Chris Elliott. Uh, This is like Chris Elliott, instead of doing a stand up comedy special, because he's not a stand up, but you know, he was given kind of a comedy special budget. So he does like a a TV episode. It's 30 minutes and like half of it, it's like two shows at once. That's why it's action family. One of it's like a a cop show and a family sitcom combined. So the soundtrack for the cop show is one way. And then for the family sitcom, there's like a laugh track and everything. And it's typical Chris Elliott fair. It's like everything is blown out of proportion to the, for the point of satire. And there's a lot of like tongue in cheek corny jokes and a lot of very smart jokes and a lot of irony and uh very absurd character work uh he also did another one that one uh that year uh fdr a one-man show which is also pretty funny wow okay yeah i got a couple for 88 uh this you know the moderns by alan rudolph uh you know I, I kind of was going chronologically through his work at some point in time. Maybe it was during the pandemic. And I kind of stopped somewhere around the 90s. I got to pick it back up. But, uh, you know, I was really in the groove, the Rudolph groove, when I saw this one. And I, I really remember it being one of his best, kind of one of the most complex in terms of style, good long takes and whatnot. And, it, you know, examines... Uh, the 1920s Parisian art scene through the eyes of an expat played uh, by Keith Carradine. You know what I mean? Uh, 
very sh- it is kind of I do kind of like Keith Carradine being like the main character in any Alan Rudolph movie even if it is a period piece you know mm-hmm. he's looking like Shaggy from Scooby Doo in this movie but um um yeah I just I just remember it being a really like kind of one of those movies where uh, uh, a lot of the stuff I like about him kind of comes together and uh, you know definitely uh, takes an interest in that time, but you know, is you know a little bit cynical about it too, and it examines it. You know, it's not quite all uh, Midnight in Paris. And then I've kind of got a, a sleeper B horror movie here. Yeah, I hate when things aren't all at Midnight in Paris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, that's that's my life is a movie, and it's Midnight in Paris. Exactly right. I mean, <laughs> in a perfect world, but I got The Carpenter, directed by David Wellington, and uh, we got. For fans of Wings, Wings Hauser, this is a Ooh. great uh, lead Wings Hauser performance where he plays a carpenter who was executed in an electric chair coming back to life to you know finish his dream house, the house that he was building in his image. And now there's a young couple and he, he comes to terrorize them. And uh, to be honest, I don't remember much about this movie other than you know it kind of just lets Wings Hauser off the leash. You know, let some charge at people with drills and other various power tools, and uh, definitely scratched the itch I was looking for at the time. So, uh, the moderns, the carpenter, that's 1988. Uh, what about you, yeah. Ethan? Well, you know, I'm sipping on my. Uh, I'm literally drinking a glass of of uh, white wine right now as we record this, so I'm, I'm tempted to give a classy pick, but. Being that this is really more of a cracking a cold one with the open with the boys kind of podcast, <laughs> uh, I will not recommend Maurice Pilaz under the Sun of Satan, and will instead for my 1987 pick uh, go to uh, J. Michael Murrow. That's how you say his name. I'm double checking right now. J. Michael Murrow's Street Trash, uh, the splatter horror movie involving a melting goo i i saw saw this film about like seven years ago in 2016 and i remember telling people it was my new favorite movie of all time (laughs) um again it's about basically a, a pile of toxic goo that makes a bunch of homeless people in new york disintegrate um it's genuinely extremely offensive and the director michael moreau said his intention making it was to offend every single possible group imaginable (laughs) um it has one of my my kind of favorite kinds of gags where someone is blatantly doing something and pretends they aren't there's a scene where a homeless man is in a grocery store and is shoving a bunch of items under his clothes and is is caught by a security guard says no i'm not i i don't know i always find stuff like that funny um this is the only directorial credit of J. J. Michael uh, Murrow. Uh, curiously, he went on to be a Steadicam operator. He was the, literally the Steadicam operator on Titanic. Oh, wow. So, st- street trash to Titanic, that's a pipeline. Uh, and I should uh, mention, uh, as a young production assistant on this film was none other than uh, uh, young uh, Brian Singer. So uh, the the the, uh, the the true evil manifested on set wasn't necessarily in the content of the of the film, so to speak. <laughs> it sounds like if you made, remade that movie now, you know what I mean. I feel like it would be a big hit, given you know the populace's uh, opinion on homeless people. You know what I mean? True. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, do, 
before we go back to the next segment, uh, I also wanted to shout out just a couple things quickly. Uh, some fun genre fare. You know, 88, you got Tiger on the Beat by Lau Kar Lung. Uh, should be more popular, you know, like that's for me, one of my favorite eighties, Hong Kong movies only to go by Ethan's metrics, only 2.4 thousand views on letterboxd for, I think one of the best eighties, Hong Kong movies. If you like your Hong Kong movies with a lot of innovative gunplay with, uh, an occasional chainsaw, uh, with a lot of kind of cute, a little too cute meta references to earlier Hong Kong movies. Uh, and a very hefty dose of very mean, cruel humor often derided uh, at women, uh, which a lot of Hong Kong movies of the era unfortunately suffer from. This movie has it in spades, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> it's it's like a lethal weapon type movie. You know, it's a, it's a buddy cop movie. Um, also, It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, much better than the first two It's Alive movies. Uh, it's Alive 3 is like a Michael Moriarty masterclass. Uh, if you want to get into Larry Cohen, those, those movies are like, you might get put off by the first two because they're like good, not great in my opinion. The third one is fucking fantastic though. And if you want to get turned on to Michael Moriarty, that might be the movie to do it. But yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, names to discover here in this segment. I'm yeah. learning a lot. Look, this this podcast, this segment is all about education. Because if you take the money out of education, all the kids end up homeless. <laughs> That's we'll be right back on extended clip. <laughs> In my defense, I, I didn't see Scream 5, nor 4, so nor 3, nor 2. I've only seen the first Scream. And you're not a fan. Yeah, I don't even really like Scream that much. <laughs> I like, I genuinely think the first Scream is like top three Wes Craven. I, I can't get that. But I, I, I mean, it's obviously not bad. I don't know. It's the problem. The problem is no, me, maybe. Yeah, you, know I mean? you, you like the more uh, visceral and the less heady. Horror, yeah, I would yeah. say. Which is because I usually do. Yeah. I, I think that's the miracle of Scream is that he's able to take that way too cheeky script and still make it feel visceral. Mm -hmm. uh, but I get that it could be too detached for a lot of people. It's clearly way more detached than his other. Like if you take his other like three or four best movies, they're not going to be nearly as detached as that one. Also, I kind of saw Scream 6 hoping that it would just kind of do the horror franchise thing where it's just like. You know, kind of just like a horror movie that's just like somewhat connected or whatever, but it's like pretty much it's all like scream lore. You have to know about like Scream Four a lot. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's like I don't. It's like I'm too much for me. Too much homework and like for me. The the meta like the commentary on the the industry around the movies has always been like it's always just been corny in the sequels. Like, but the thing is, 
would you rather have now where it's like in Scream 5 there's a scene where the characters are talking about the last Jedi online debates yeah. or Scream 3 where you get a walk-on cameo from Silent J and Bob. There <laughs> like, is there's there's, uh, there's three, that's way better. You there's know? Clearly, 3 minutes of Reddit in Scream 6. Yeah, there's there's like, there's some yeah. good Reddit Scream, scrolling. Scream 3 is basically a formless <laughs> movie. Like it is yeah. like nothing but it's still good enough because it's like at least the dog shit of that era was good if there was a good director, kind of. You know, Scream 4 was not great, necessarily, but I feel very I like fondly it. looking back. I, like I, lo- I feel four. very fondly looking back. It's the best sequel. Yeah, I feel very fondly looking back on seeing that in the theater. I was like, is this what yeah. seeing, like, real Lobo felt like back in, like, <laughs> 1970 <laughs> or something? <laughs> Just seeing this, like, late, this, you know, late style in the theater. That's how I felt uh, at that fucking 9.30 a.m. first Saturday screening of uh, Cafe Society at the uh, Arclight Sherman Oaks with, like, eight elderly Jewish women. (laughs) Wait, sorry, which one was that again? I didn't miss that. Uh, Cafe Society. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I saw Wonder Wheel in the theater, so. Oh, God, I wish I saw Wonder Wheel in the theaters. I actually, I got a hold of a physical screener of Wonder Wheel very early on. And I was like, I don't want to show my face at the theater. <laughs> uh, maybe the maybe this is a good transition point because the Wonder Wheel literally appears in the next movie we're about to talk about. That is very true. New York, in, baby. In a fantastic vision of New York by a filmmaker whose name I'd been mispronouncing Rollin? all these years. John Rollins. Uh, John, John up. John Henry Rollins. <laughs> uh, so it's it's like Royan, Ethan. Yeah, I, I mean, I... Uh, like the I, way I, that the my, double L's in Spanish turn into that sound? Yeah, my, my girlfriend is French. I could walk into the living room right now and consult her on this, but I believe it's Royal. Okay, Royal. Uh, yeah. So... Jean I'm going to call him John R. Yeah, I, I like uh, <laughs> saying it like uh, like Rollins Band, you know? <laughs> <laughs> JR. And you know what? I think uh, he would enjoy the work of uh, HR, old Hank, you know? Possibly, uh, yeah. Because they're, well, uh, they, they both work in short bursts, uh, often at their best. Obviously, Henry Rollins, varied discography, but uh, yeah. uh, early iconic Black Flag songs are all, you know, two minutes or so. Uh, and the the uh, discography of old Jr. over here mainly consists of very short, very uh, you know strange movies, often in the horror but like artsy horror realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a very interesting film, Lost in New York, uh, from 1989. Uh, it kind of reminded me of a lot of like foreign filmmakers going to New York in treating it in this very strange dreamlike way when they shoot there, whether it's Fulci with uh, the New York Ripper or scenes from um, what's it called? Zombie two. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. Scenes from zombie two uh, or like uh, <laughs> Mabel Chung's and autumn tale, which we could have talked about in the Ooh. middle segment there, a gay, uh, good Hong Kong, New York movie. Uh, and it just like it's this weird thing where you're using the iconography of like the most iconic American city, but you're taking a completely foreign, strange perspective on it in this weird, artsy, dreamlike film form. And uh, I, I think it, it it evokes like a dream state so well. And uh, yeah, I was really impressed with this one. Well, I don't know if you you guys are like me, but I was first exposed 
through this movie because it was when you looked up Clams Casino. Yeah, Clams Casino. I'm God. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was a fan music video, I guess. You know, of scenes from this movie. Wow, um, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I never, I never took the second step, but I remember looking in the comments, being like, "What? What is this? What is this? This looks yeah. so cool." And you know, finally, years later, thanks to, uh, to Ethan, I've connected that dot. So, wow. thank you. That's also how I was first exposed to this. How I first ever saw scenes from this film was, I think it was at like a friend's New Year's Eve party in like 2012. And he was playing that music video off his laptop. I was like, what? what's that? That looks cool. Um, so I'm assuming the outro of this show will be Eddie like overlaying uh, Bill Simmons clips over that song. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels... It makes me the most nostalgic for Boston, I think, of all the movies, because it does the best job of just being like, oh, yeah, Boston. That that made me think of, like, people getting exposed to films like that. It makes me think of this one edit, this horrible like YouTube I saw once. Uh, someone posted on Twitter, and it was like, I think it was Last Night by The Strokes, like, cut, like, a cute music video with clips from Godard's Hail Mary. Uh, And it was, like, a very, like, twee interpretation of Hail Mary by Godard. And, look, I I don't have nothing against The Strokes or anything like that, but it just, like, felt very cringe, you know, 2012 film Tumblr kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, And that would be very funny for, like, someone looking up, you know, Last Night by The Strokes on YouTube and be like, I gotta check this Godard guy out. This is like this seems like a cool movie about a cool young girl, you know? <laughs> I mean there's a, a Nico a Nico album with the cover the cover was a still from uh Philippe Garel's The Inner Scar. Ooh. So and I think I think it's like listed in the liner notes. And that was a hard film to see for years. Like yeah. it's still probably not technically available in North America. So there's probably like, I don't know dozens of dozens upon burgeoning uh, dozens upon dozens of burgeoning art hoes and like weird you know heroin shooting guys in north america are like what's this uh what's this la cicatrice l'interrière movie <laughs> we can only hope then you know the next generation will be saved yeah you know, if the, you know. yeah <laughs> uh i like that uh ethan's uh impression of a heroin shooting guy in north america trying to read a french name still sounds better than me trying to read a french name (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so ethan why was it this film in particular that you wanted to bring to the podcast Uh, i'm a really big fan of royan um I think of all the kind of arty horror guys, he's the one, I don't know, who always, like, like I, I, I appreciate Jess Franco a lot, but I'm always, like, I feel like a little at a distance from his movies. Mm-hmm. Or this, I don't know, I feel like I sort of connect with Royan's obsessions and fetishes a little more. Um, and I, I felt this was just, again, um, I wanted to spring a really obscure one on you guys. And it was, I was like, okay, it's a bit of a risk. But it also it is only 52 minutes long, so maybe you won't be too mad at me if you don't like it. <laughs> well, I already I already liked uh, Jr. and you know seeing the length, I just assumed that this must have been like a TV movie or made for TV, which is kind of even funnier. Yeah. Just, I mean that's that's sick that you could get that on French TV. That's like some Alan Clark TV movie level shit right there. Well, it's uh, like uh, half of Fassbender's movies were made for German TV, like. European yeah. TV movies were were popping off. 
Death. Yeah, that's something. HBO before HBO. HBO Market corrected that. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we have Oz. We yeah, exactly. Watch. We used to have Orson Welles making the immortal story for French TV, and now we have Succession. But you know what can you do? Uh, <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. Yeah, was, no, a, I like succession. That's comparison. the funny thing. Like, it's, I'm, just, I'm just goofing. I could have said any number of bad shows there. Uh, <laughs> uh, see, that's the thing. When I say this on a podcast, it's fine because no one listens. But I say it on Twitter, and everyone loses their damn minds. Frauds, man. They're all frauds. Yeah. Uh, But I I did love the TV movie form for this. I think this is like a great way to just like really just dive into a very dream kind of fantasy type thing like this. Uh, This is my first film by this filmmaker. And it reminded me of Jess Franco, of course. But it almost reminded me of like Jacques Rivette also. Like it was like, absolutely like, uh, like a combination of those two. And, you know, it, it's this parable, you know, this p- old lady in the beginning uh, who, you know, tells her story. Uh, it talks about like the magic little girl who could travel through time and uh, references a, a merry-go-round, which, of course, recalls like La Ronde by Ophels as well. And, uh, you know, she says it's like a merry-go-round, but the item that's actually used is this merry-go-round, this time-traveling, space-traveling device, is this, like, African idol that's referred to as a moon goddess, I guess. Uh, And that is, like, a launching point to flash back to, you know, these two girls as kids and uh, this, like, book that, quote-unquote, becomes a cinema. And that cinema, quote-unquote, is, like, their kind of space traveling device if you will uh and uh yeah it's like a really interesting kind of uh you know dream romp if you will uh which is a that that's a fun subcategory of art house film the dream romp yeah it's like uh, <laughs> like crazy things are happening but it's like very artistic and slow kind of uh but crazy things are happening in like the mise-en-scene and like of like what's going on actually uh, a lot of like Boonwell is kind of like that, you know, the dream romp. Uh, well, oh, uh, City of Pirates by Raul, Raul, Raul Ruiz, or is it Island of Pirates? I, City I of Pirates know. or Island of Pirates? I, think, I don't know. Ethan, you've seen Raul Ruiz films. I haven't. I believe I, it's City of Pirates. Okay, that's the only one I've seen by him, so I got to get the name right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, JT, what did you think of this one? Um, this was also my first Royon, and uh, yeah, no, I was really, I don't know, taken aback, and one thing, like, like I just love, the, it, it, this was a good version of the dream romp, and also, like, pairing the dream romp with, like, memory and looking back at life, and, like, looking back at, like, youth in particular, like, I feel like that this is a particularly good pair of movies. I mean, just doing this and uh, big night because there's like, there's a youthful quality here uh, to the ambling about in lost in New York and particularly the early sections. And I mean like a lot of this stuff with the older woman reminded me of like a movie I absolutely hate, but like this would be the like petite maman, by Celine Sciamma. <laughs> like, this is, like, the good version of, like, that type of, like, magical, like, like fantastical story. Because it's just, like, that movie I really 
took umbrage with because it's like, I don't know, it's slow and boring and like it's exploring like, I don't know, childhood wonder and whatever happy horse shit. But like this is like my a lot of my takeaway of it through their like especially the scenes of the little girls like looking at like a like reading this storybook and the way there's like narration over it describing like feeling like these famous like fictional characters and the way it like goes into like the fantasy little romp of being in New York just for me really encapsulated like a lot of feelings I had like I don't know whenever when I was young and I was in like a big city for the first time and sort of those experiential elements of just like the way the camera moves and I, I, I don't know it was like uh, I think a lot of the times things that are a little bit like magical or like m- mystical will kind of like put me off like at first because it's just like it's a harder milieu for me to get to but this did it in like a fascinating way where it's like it's obviously a quick movie um but it's taking its time yeah and it's like you know it's also kind of operating almost like you know it's very dreamy and that almost kind of feels like a different type of thing almost sometimes than like you know, wizardry or something like that, or, you know, for sure. Yeah. Spells, you know, it is. And I think that that is, you know, Jr. that is kind of maybe his specialty, at least to me, like he really does capture kind of like the intersection of, you know, or maybe not scratch intersection, just kind of dreamy horror, you know, type movies. And that's kind of the, the aspect of those movies that, that really shine, you know, you know, someone like Fulci, he's, he's, a, he's maybe a little too gore obsessed for that, you know, sometimes, or, uh, Franco, you know, sometimes you're just straight up watching pornography in his movie for 10 minutes. You're like, <laughs> like, Oh, great. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> Will Sloan is fuming listening to this. No, right? no, no, no. <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> no, I've, I enjoy a nice, uh, zoom in, you know, to, to the bush shot for, 10 I like minutes, in, I guess. uh, the erotic rights of Frankenstein that yeah. there is literally like a slam zoom on Frankenstein's ass. <laughs> I think that is one of the funniest shots in cinema. That I, I need to see that one because that that sounds pretty funny. But like, uh, yeah, and you know, for for this one, it, it is like uh, I guess maybe since it was a TV movie, it kind of it's this one it doesn't really go too much erotic, I guess. And you know, towards the end, the the moon goddess does some some dances, you know, you know that uh, I guess you know. But th- that's not the point of you know the movie. And I, it is kind of interesting to see him go a little bit more sentimental. But you know. The he's so abstract and dreamlike, you know. Never, you never really feel it in like a schmaltzy way. Obviously, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think going off what you guys have been saying, um, again, a lot of Royan's films. Some of them are gore films, and obviously, a lot of them have like naked women, like you know, walking throughout the frame throughout. But I think there's a very gentle quality to a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is maybe his gentlest movie aside from the one, uh, the knife scene. Um, and yeah, I think he is like, yeah, JT was saying, I think Royan, and this is this is sort of a, a recurring image throughout his th- films, especially in uh, one of my favorites of his, Two Orphan Vampires, which is it'll often be two you know young girls reading a storybook. That's a recurring image. 
he's someone who I think is very in touch with what his childhood was like. I think he grew up in a more rural part of France and probably his was probably a lonely child and his company kind of was just storybooks and films and he's constantly in touch with that childlike wonder while still also being in touch with uh, a bit of a perverted side as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. You know, I, I, I cherish both parts of my, you know, myself like that. You know, I mean, so- I think one sequence that I love that I feel like has part of the perversity and childlike wonder. I mean, maybe it's only perverse because you get you're seeing a little tit action underneath the white shirt of like. Can we get a timestamp. No. <laughs> you check Mr. Skin. I'm not doing the work for you. <laughs> um, but it's uh, the sequence where it's like the woman. Like I forget exactly. It's very hard to describe. But the vampire vampiress coming in. And then you get all these like shots. It leads into the shots of New York where you have the like smoke coming up in the city and all these night sequences. Um, And they're like, uh, um, I'm not sure if it's like Times Square or whatever, but where they're the bright glittering lights um, when it carries into there. Like, I mean, I think like the lead in of being the woman. And then I feel like from that point on, you start to see a little bit more, it's more tit action in there. But like that, um, that sequence there of just like, especially paired with the score and the smoke like billowing out like from underground. And then there's some weird shots of like, just like horses in New York City where it's just like that. I. I don't know. I had never like paused for a moment and how thought about how kind of strange and otherworldly it is that like in some cities still like you can get a horse ride and it just like that made me sort of reflect upon like the weird like uh, mythical quality of real life. I mean, I guess I'm not really getting at any perversity here other than just the lead in <laughs> of being able to see through a woman's shirt, but. Uh, well, it depends really what you want to do up. with the horse. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you see any horses hanging dong. Uh, no, but that, I think you following that line of thought though is, I don't know. I, th- I think I thought I thought that was good because it is like I feel like that's how you kind of have to, you know, interpret that movie in kind of getting lost in these landscapes and your thoughts and kind of just writing the lyrical quality of the movie. Uh, befriending the lyrical loneliness. Exactly, exactly. That's what you got. <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a self help book. People don't know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the most arresting image in this, the recurring image of them on the beach, or images, I guess, uh, with those white masks. You know, yeah. uh, it's just I don't know. Uh, water often used as a symbol for you know life and rebirth and uh, all of that kind of good stuff, which makes sense for this kind of story of an old lady recounting as a kid diving into a story that takes her into the future. Like uh, all these layers of time, uh, flashbacks and flash forward, dilute it more and more and more into more of this dream uh, type state. And it's so everything becomes so vague. And uh, that's why it's so good. I, I love it. And then you get just like a couple scenes. It's like, oh, now you got a vampire. 
Got some big teeth going. Let's go. All right. Now it's a scene with some knife stuff. Uh, it's like he has these like like just these dream like sequences going further and further backwards and forwards through these flashbacks, and then just jolts you with like some some real carnal action. Uh, jolts you back into place, and I, I just think it's a really wonderful, nifty little movie there. Yeah, and I, I kind of think it, it's it's something. In, I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm talking out of my ass here a little bit, but it sort of feels like it's something that is almost achievable as like a micro budget film. <laughs> like you kind of, in a good way, you kind of feel like, oh, I I I could make that. Yeah. I could uh, <laughs> just like I could just get people on a beach wearing masks and shoot some <laughs> scenes in New York. It actually it reminded me a little bit of um, when I was like. 21 and i started watching revet movies i was like oh i'm gonna make my own homage to it i like wrote a little script and like was doing like location scouting with my friend who had a camera and it's sort of like weirdly the film had a it sort of reminded me of that that film i conceived of making when i was 21 and we can all watch that film now right it was done it was shot it was finished i uh... i should i i should i should make it now this this revisiting the film inspired me to finally uh, pick it up again. yeah you got to open up that storybook that takes you back to being 21 years old and exactly film this time yeah Yeah. we want to yeah we want to have you back in a year kind of like they do in shark tank when they sponsor (laughs) a successful business and be like ethan vetsby's now a art filmmaker now with his debut Uh, film uh, sponsored by extended clip you know podcast lost in new york too (laughs) that's already a movie unfortunately home alone (laughs) lost in new york (laughs) uh, mine will also have donald trump in a cameo (laughs) (laughs) where he says uh reddit is down the hall that way or whatever my favorite scene in that movie Oh boy, uh, Ethan. Any uh, any final thoughts on this one in a rating? Uh, again, I, I I I sort of think again I pick this film because I think it does do the things that I want cinema to do. I think those just those jump cuts where characters disappear within a frame. Again, it's it's a pretty simple thing when you think about it, but things like that and just sort of like cutting throughout time and dimensions through editing are. That is ultimately what I look for in cinema. Um, so, I mean, yeah. I, the last, the first episode uh, I did, I think my double feature was slightly underwhelming what I picked. So maybe this is me overcompensating a little. But I'm going <laughs> to give this, I am going to give this five bullets. Ooh, coming out strong. And you know what? It's inspiring because I passed this off as a certain rating. When I watched it. And it's only grown on me, but not in the way that movies usually grow on you. It, I haven't thought about the characters. I, I remember maybe... I remember one of them is named Marie, but I forgot what the other one's name is. Michelle. Michelle. Marie and Michelle. Michelle. Um, it's not like that. I'm not thinking about the story. I'm transported back to the feeling of the movie and certain shots and camera movements and just general vibes of scenes and I'm bumping up my rating because I think that although I had initially left a little bit uh, because like maybe there's more to get out of Ryan uh, the more I watch his stuff 
but I'm going to go with a strong four bullets. Ooh. Lost in New York. What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I'm going four bullets as well. Um, recently, this is the first movie I have watched. Like I've been, I've been pumping the brakes on movies this little bit this year. And uh, the Good. last two I had seen uh, were John Wick Chapter 4 and then the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Um, and, like, this, oh, man, was such a, like, a, a great, like, recalibration of my mind to just sort of, like, take a breath and, like, I don't know, just have a, like, a, a very tender, like, art cinema experience that, like, I could just... Uh, I don't know, just vibe with and feel. Um, and I don't know. I I love, like, because, uh, like, I mean, again, like, something like this, you can obviously veer into a direction where it, like, gets into, like, th things that are in this artier realm of, like, I don't want to say, I mean, I guess uh, from what you've said about Royan's other work, like, Eileen's more horror, this, there's really none of that. But it's so, not, like, what'd you say? I said there's some light. Yeah, horror. a little bit. Yeah, I mean like vampires and then the stabbing, but yeah. it all's like very playful and light still mm -hmm. too. And I love the score um, of this movie in terms of it being like playful and light. There are like some torn, like especially during the stabbing. Like I think it's kind of like a boyoying like kind <laughs> of noise that happens, and that also happens when they're doing they're like popping. the disappearing. Yeah, yeah, the disappearing. Great and, cheeky uh, sound effect. Yeah, no, this is really fun. What Ethan? Do you have a like having like slim to no like experience with Royan? Like what? Where where do we go next? Where are you taking me? What do I do? I'd say uh, my. Two other favorites are the Iron Rose and the Living Dead Girl. Okay. Uh, the Living Dead Girl is referenced in this movie, like alongside All Time Greats too, which I liked that move. That was a yeah. He references a, a number of his own films in that in that scene, that <laughs> sequence. He's placing himself within the the, the lineage and the chronology of uh, fantasy cinema, which is fantastic. That flex. But those two, but um, I also, you got to watch one of the vamp the vampire films. So of the vampire films, the naked vampire ones, I'd watch either Fascination or Lips of Blood. Okay. Yeah, I've seen Fascination and that, that one is probably my favorite. That one. I think they're, an one. I, at, least in the, at least in Canada, they're like all on canopy. So uh, if you've got canopy, you're, you're set. He is yeah. Roland is one of the. He is a canopy all star. He he is. I think they had like fifteen of his movies on canopy. I like saying it like Jean Roland because it's like Roland Roland. Yeah Roland, yeah yeah. Roland, Roland. Roll. It's sick. Like Roland is sick. It's like so many so many cool actions are done by Roland. It's um, it's very true. That is one of your <laughs> most broad but astute observations <laughs> to date. So many ways to roll, you know. But uh, <laughs> this you know, is, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm sliding it into the lists. Like I'm putting this number eight movie of 1989, which wow. 1989, <laughs> all time great year, probably. Like yeah. so many, like four and a half and five movies. You mm -hmm. know, you got Crimes and misdemeanors do the right thing. Pedicab driver, etc. Uh, this movie's joining the ranks. This is a great movie. 
Check it, check for the updates coming soon. Oh, you uh, know I these letterbox. I, I, the the uh, lists are always in flux, baby. So yeah, subscribe to the RSS feed of Eddie's lists on Letterbox. I think we got that working. Yeah, uh-huh. one dollar a month Patreon, <laughs> you get a live update uh, email for every time I move something. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Uh, I'm I'm gonna give this one four bullets as well. Uh, I feel like this movie's so you know in in addition it. It's uh, it being kind of abstract and dreamlike. It's also very brief too, and like, you know, even more brief than like short movies. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, you know, twenty minutes shorter than like a seventy-five minute movie. You know, or something like that. So, I almost kind of like, and maybe it's because of how I discovered it originally. You know, with the "I'm God" music video, I kind of feel like I think of this movie kind of like in the way I think of like songs, you know, even more than movies, or just kind of like how it's just. I don't know. It kind of makes me think of like uh, Till I Die by the Beach Boys or something. Kind of just uh, uh, evocations of kind of uh, strong emotions. And, and it's all just very kind of brief. And I guess, it, you know, it all kind of uh, coagulates in the movie. But sometimes it can feel a little random. And yeah, so I I, I really like this movie. I, I it's It's also interesting to see, you know one of his later movies and kind of how he's like referencing himself. It is like late style handbook. This, you know, this movie passes the late style test. So yeah, good stuff. Damn. Till I die. That makes me want to add another star to this movie. <laughs> just, <laughs> just the fact that it could be tied into that. <laughs> uh, so now we know what's going to play over the end. Uh, <laughs> Mash it. We're going to go the hood internet with it. I'm God, Beach Boys, yeah. mash up. Well, I was already going to not just do the instrumental I'm God, of course. Of Little go. B, yeah. Of course. That is that. a Little B song, by That's the way. An not ultimate, a Clams Casino song. That is an ultimate Let's Go branded moment is I'm God by Little B. No emails this week, so that's going to do it. Thank you so much, Ethan, uh, for staying up late on the East Coast with us. Uh, also, thank you to JT for staying up late on the East Coast with us. But he's he's Baby, not a guest. It ain't even 10 yet. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hanging in there. Uh, but, Ethan, thank you for joining us uh, this week on the podcast. It was fantastic to have you once again. Is there anything you would like to promote to the listeners of Extended Clip? Uh, I will just say if you are in Toronto or just in the GTA, just in Ontario period, I have a screening series uh, in Toronto called Bleeding Edge. Uh, we have it, it we're, we, primarily we showcase uh, short films from across North America. Uh, we have a new event lined up for the end of April. In fact, I just received a call from the venue before we started recording. That's why I had to get off the call for a second uh but that will be that will be announced soon and we may have some other feature film screenings in the works uh but that's primarily the thing i want to promote and i'll you know look at my twitter look at my instagram i'll be talking about that but yeah well we will see you uh, next week as we continue not next week but next time as next we continue it might be a year in between episodes you don't know the final leg of the extended clip reunion tour uh the canadian excellence leg of the tour continues uh with will sloan coming on next time uh so that will be a fun episode we were uh i forgot what movies we're talking about so whatever we'll announce it online probably probably gay porn 
Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, we haven't. That's one, you know, that's one frontier we haven't crossed yet. So the that, final frontier. Yeah, that is the, the that is <laughs> that is the final frontier of uh, cinephilias watching gay porn as a straight person because like, oh, there might be a cool shot in it or something. <laughs> <laughs> kind of seems like I don't know. I don't know. Kind of seems like questionable. Thing to do. Let's let's stop podcasting and watch basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, is this a, this a, uh, I'm trying to think of a, <laughs> a euthanism for smoking weed, uh, this a, uh, um, <laughs> wake and bake, this a wake and bake podcast? I woke up 14 hours ago, but <laughs> I'm still sleeping. I'm still sleeping. <laughs>